With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creator. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. This episode is quite a bit of fun as I visit with Scott Moritz. Scott's a good friend, and he's the Managing Director, Global Lead at Protivity Forensic. We take a look at the Varsity Blues scandal, but from really the forensic angle, Scott talks about the root cause analysis of the scandal and what colleges and universities who are not implicated in the scandal should be doing at this point. With so much in the public domain, uh, there's a lot that you can use as a roadmap going forward, and Scott Moritz provides that for you. It's a fascinating uh, example of how you use root cause analysis and forensic skills in current events. I know you will enjoy it. Finally, the FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and you are in for a real treat today because I have with me Scott Moritz. Scott is the Managing Director, Global Lead at Protivity Forensic. Uh, I've known Scott about as long as I have been in the compliance arena, and he is one of not only the top practitioners in compliance, but he's also one of the top thought leaders. And he has uh, agreed to come onto the podcast to talk about the Varsity Blues scandal from uh, a little bit different perspective. So, Scott, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Hey, hey, hey thanks for the opportunity to, to, to join you today, Tom. Always always a pleasure. Scott, there's been a, obviously a lot written about this case. Uh, a lot of uh, individuals are ensnared in it. Uh, uh, universities are ensnared in it. But uh, you had an angle that I really wanted to explore, which was universities who are not named and who have not been alleged to have been a part of this, what should they do to basically pressure test their systems to see if there was any uh, undue influence or perhaps even anything worse? Yeah, um, you know, thank, thanks, Tom. And uh, yeah, I feel like um, so much in compliance is about applying lessons learned, not necessarily things that have directly affected your organization, but also kind of being somewhat uh, grateful for not having been directly impacted. And then, you know, honest um, with, you know, themselves in terms of, uh, could this have happened to our organization? And should we go through the process of applying uh, root cause analysis as though it had happened at the organization. So, you know, the, the nice thing about a scandal that has been widely reported on, it, it, it has a, a fair amount of detail 
in the public domain that could provide, you know, a roadmap to um, uh, educational institutions, particularly the elite educational institutions that are, um, you know, a part of um, Varsity Blues or could have been, and just determining, hey, if we had uh, similar circumstances, uh, would our controls have detected it? Would our personnel have understood the implications of uh, acquiescing to the bribe? Um, what kind of rigor could we be applying to our um, student athletes to make sure they are in fact uh, legitimate student athletes and aren't being miscast as such? And that sort of thing would then, you know, hopefully kind of lead to um, somewhat of a, a roadmap. Uh, to those organizations to um, better uh, align their organizational ethos with what's actually happening inside uh, the university vis-a-vis -vis the admissions process. Well, Scott, would you advocate, or I guess maybe I should step back, can a entity such as a university or college who has not had a violation perform a root cause analysis, or is uh, this more uh, just an investigative oversight? So, I mean, I think it, it can be. I mean, you know, it, listen, a strict interpretation of root cause analysis is something has to have happened. So it's more kind of uh, an, a, uh, a hybrid, right? Applying some of the same techniques that you would apply in performing root cause analysis to your organization. And, and, and I think you used a really good term a moment ago, which is to pressure test your control environment and to uh, to see if, in fact, you as an organization, you as an educational institution are susceptible to, um, you know, the, the types of admissions fraud um, that uh, was going on, um, you know, in, in the universities. And I think one interesting um, dynamic also that has happened um, that is is worth looking at, you know, if you know if an uh, a university is going to go through this process, they shouldn't look at things too narrowly through the Operation Varsity Blues lens. They should also kind of look more broadly: is anyone exercising undue influence over admissions? Because you know the open secret that I think everyone is well aware of is that big donors uh, to universities um, wield considerable influence over the admissions process. No, nobody wants to acknowledge that, but I, I think, you know, no one's going to be able to demonstrate uh, that it's not happening. Well, Scott, there are so many moving parts in Varsity Blues. We had uh, individuals who were engaging in uh, alleged illegal behavior to actually change SAT scores. We have the testing companies who uh, allowed uh, persons with an appropriate or a doctor's note to basically have a uh, uh, not an unlimited time to complete the test, but longer than the uh, typical student. We, we had the, the universities themselves, we have the parents, and we have very independent persons within universities, such as those in the athletic department, whether it be an athletic director, whether it be a tennis coach, or um, or other uh, athletic figures uh, in this, how how could a university begin to think through 
all of these moving parts, or, or would you advocate they simply focus on uh, the the control environment uh, which they operate? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of moving parts, and I think really, you know, the, at the heart of it is, um, you know, candidates that are uh, have been um, designated for admission. Um, and, and the decision hasn't yet been finalized. Um, I, you know, I, I think certainly um, those that have been um, th- th- whose either academic scores or test scores fall outside of the normal parameters um, warrant special attention. Um, so why? Wh- what is it about this candidate that warrants admission if they don't um, fit neatly within our criteria. And then, you know, to the extent that they have been flagged as a uh, a prized recruit for one of the athletic teams, uh, perhaps, you know, challenging the the documentation a little bit, you know, you know, and it could be something as simple as, uh, you know, the nice thing about, you know, having a, um, a talented high school athlete is they, they make news. Um, and if you've got someone that's been characterized as a division one caliber athlete, who's been designated for admission, um, what news stories have been reported about that collegiate athlete and their accomplishments? Because if they are you know, being miscast as, as, you know, these elite athletes, and yet there's no news media about them having won track meets or, uh, you know, finishing in first place in a, in a in a crew event or water polo or the various sports, uh, tennis, at soccer, et cetera, that um, were flagging these as recruits, then, you know, that right there kind of could call into question the legitimacy. Um, I, I think it may be a little bit more challenging to get behind the test scores um, and whether or not they were taken in an environment that wasn't corrupted because I don't know to what extent uh, admissions has vi- visibility into whether um, someone was given um, test accommodations for a disability. Um, and, you know, I hesitate for them to even go there. It's so repellent that these students were being um, mischaracterized as needing test accommodation so that they corrupt, they could corrupt the proctors. Uh, but that's, um, it would be interesting to explore to what extent um, admissions offices have some visibility into that. So um, where would, uh, how would you suggest a university even begin to start? Should they simply um, uh, maybe even start with outlining the admissions process, but not simply Tom Fox or Scott Moritz sending in an application along with our essay and uh, SAT scores, but really look at every place at the university where students uh, either could be admitted or at least even recommended for admission? I think so. I think they really need to kind of be very introspective and look, you know, end to end at the, at the process. Um, you know, we, um, you know, you hear about certain universities where um, and and I know this from from um, being the, the father of, of student athletes, um, you know, coaches wield some degree of influence about um, people who gain admission who have the potential to play on their teams. 
um, I want to say that they get a certain number of chits per, per, per school year that they can use um, to, um, to perhaps put a, a student athlete over the top. And then, you know, then the question, of course, becomes, um, you know, is this a legitimate athlete? Uh, so, you know, obviously there's so much attention being paid to this that um, I, I, I can't imagine that would be the door through which uh, an otherwise unqualified candidate would come now. But, you know, you, you have to absolutely plug that hole. But then I think more broadly, you know, th- there needs to be, um, you know, an, an understanding of um, the universe of people that are advocating and lobbying admissions um, and uh, just gaining under, get an understanding is, okay, um, you know, this is a worthwhile student um, and, you know, here's some m- mitigating factors that would make them more suited for admission or is it somebody that is absolutely just trying to leverage their donor position um, to get a otherwise unqualified uh, uh, candidate uh, admitted to the university. Scott, one of the things that I think uh, you and I have talked about uh, over the years is uh, what to do when the government comes knocking, but here we're talking about how to prepare for even that eventuality. How would a, a university or other uh, ed- some of the things that you've talked about so that if uh, a federal look at this process and and maybe even develop a roadmap for remediation thereafter? So, um, you know, I think, you know, you you touch upon a really good point and it, you know, I'm, and I think you and I are very like-minded in this regard. Um, You know, the, the, the Department of Justice, the SEC, you know, they have endeavored to be very transparent in terms of how they go about evaluating um, an ethics and compliance program in determining whether there is an effective compliance program in place at the time of an offense. Um, and the framework that they use are the, the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. So it just stands to reason that if you are you know, seeking to lower your risk of ethical violations and, and criminality, uh, you should use the same type of framework that the government would use so that, you know, you don't have to turn yourself inside out uh, if you do have to uh, explain the details of your program to the government. Why not use the same terminology that the government uses? It just makes it so much easier for them to grasp that, yes, in fact, you have embraced the hallmarks of effective compliance program. You've taken measurable steps to not only create a program that covers off all 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but you've taken that added step to operationalize them with very strong controls underlying each of the 10, to the extent that they're all relevant. Not, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that there are a lot of universities that are doing acquisition due diligence, for example, um, but many of the other hallmarks are very applicable because you know, that's the, you know, a, a great way to convey um, you know, to the government that um, you, know, you, you got the memo uh, yeah, and you acted on it and you, you took you know, reasonable steps to stand up a, a robust program 
And then what we have here isn't some sort of institutional practice. It's, it's an anomaly. Scott, in terms of the types of investigations uh, the government might do, kind of drawing upon your professional background before you were at Providity, uh, uh, what would, if, if um, you know, if a regulator, if a DOJ, if the FBI or the SEC came in on a forensic basis, what are some of the things you think they might want to look at? You know, so often um, the, the government wants to see uh, electronic communications, um, emails, um, instant messaging apps. Um, you know, a, a lot of um, uh, attention is being paid to um, disappearing messaging apps and, and what the um, uh, organization's policy on their use. Um, you know, the extent that these are, uh, it's a bring your own device policy or it, these are, um, uh, um, organization owned communication devices, tablets, smartphones, laptops, um, and desktop computers. So, um, you know, there's also, you know, other types of instant messaging, uh, communications, um, uh, chatter and, and yammer are, are two that come to mind. Um, these are often, um, the foundation on which criminal cases are made. Um, in stunning um, amount of cases, um, people speak pretty freely in um, business communications about um, uh, illegal acts. Um, sometimes they speak in code, but you know, just <laughs> to the, even the untrained eye, it's so obvious that um, someone is speaking in code. It's, I think it's more damning than it is to actually speak overtly about the, the subject at hand. But those, um, those electronic communications are often um, um, so critical to establishing uh, whether there's been, been a violation. And, and of course, you know, then it's a useful tool uh, for compliance and it's a useful to tool for internal investigations. What are we doing here? Um, and, you know, for that matter, you know, do people understand um, you know, that an email lives forever because uh, that's a that, that'd be useful information, uh, particularly in an educational institution where maybe they're not as um, they're not getting the same steady diet of compliance communications as they might in a corporate setting. Scott, with the um, continued focus uh, of on this case and uh, because people some people have played uh, not guilty, uh, there may be additional indictments. The uh, uh, investigation may expand. It seems to me that uh, this is a, a really clear signal for every institution of higher learning to take some steps to see uh, where they might be uh, if they uh, would have any problems. And um, would so uh, would it be fair to say that you're really suggesting that they need to, to get out ahead of this now and see if there are indeed any problems in their shop? I, I really do. You know, it, it's not as though this is the first scandal that has affected a major university. Um, there, there have been um, a, a, a succession of scandals that have affected major universities over the past 10 years. Um, you know, you, you don't have to go too far back on the timeline to zero in on some other examples. 
I think one of the differences, though, and when you, if you contrast educational institutions to corporate America, is the response um, that you don't often see um, a, um, you know, a robust compliance remediation plan at a university, at least not in the same um, with the same frequency as you do in a in a corporate um, in a corporate setting. There's, you know, Appendix, you know, C in every deferred prosecution agreement provides a, a roadmap for the compliance remediation expectations of the government. And, you know, I, I assume that in extreme examples, it's happening at major universities. But I, I just don't think that the whole compliance, you know, uh, you know focus is, has taken root in, in too many major universities. Well, it's been my experience, and I'm the son of a professor, so uh, perhaps I have a little more knowledge than the average bear, but almost every uh, university and almost every college has some form of federal funding. And if they have federal funding, there are going to be federal requirements. And uh, having having um, policies and procedures and controls in place to prevent bribery and corruption is a part of every federal uh, grant requirement. So uh, I'm sure those obligations are there, even if people have not dusted those off and looked at them for some time uh, going forward. Uh, Scott, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if there's any any other thoughts you might have sort of uh, in wrap-up or um, uh, where folks should go for more information on this. Um, So, uh, yeah, just some final thoughts. You know, I um, you know, our elite educational institutions have, um, you know, m- many of them, you know, have their curriculum is around business ethics, um, their, their um, mission statements talk about how, you know, th- they're instilling, um, you know, ethical business practices and and, and leadership ideals to the, you know, our, our future uh, government and, and business and community leaders, um, you know, those words mean something. Um, and they should be looking inward with those mission statements and see, you know, um, are those words ringing hollow based on actually how the organization has uh, stood up an ethics and compliance program? Are they living up to the high standards that they um, they have portrayed in the mission statement? And if they're not, then, you know, they've, they've got some work ahead of them. You know, Scott, that's a, that's a great point to end on. And I uh, think you've given me the title of this podcast. So uh, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. And I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. Tom, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I would thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another topic in FCPA Compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.